Welcome to the Mission Book Club. Yeah, the first uh, live hangout. First ever. So we are doing Skin in the Game today. And if you read the announcement, the long one I posted in the group, a quick overview of the book club is it's not going to be as much of a review or a recap of the book as it is how can we distill the ideas in the book and make them applicable, not just for daily life, but how can we talk with each other to figure out um, not only how to make these applied, but I think, you know, come together and kind of form a bit of a community around um, making it easier to apply these ideas because it's really easy to read something in a book. It's much more difficult to apply something in your own life and out in the wild. And it typically takes a, a group or a tribe of like-minded people uh, in order for anything, any new type of behavior change or um, like some of the crazier ideas in here, if you're actually going to implement them or start you know, living them, it's going to take some support from peers that you know, people you don't know. So yeah, it's going to be uh, as applicable as possible. That's and so, yeah, and really, we just want this to be as engaging for everyone as possible. So as you, you know, have different kind of notes or thoughts or ideas, as you're reading the books, as you're making notes, um, feel free to post those in the group at any time, but also specifically, you know, when we do these, uh, fire away questions, fire thoughts into the chat, really as much engagement um, as we can get on this so we can talk about the book uh, and have like thoughtful and meaningful discussions. Like this is by no means meant to be just us rehashing our favorite parts here at the mission. Um, although we do have a lot of favorite parts, but it's really for all of us to kind of learn and grow together as we continue to, to do these for different books and different topics and all that. So definitely. And let me post a link to the group. Oh, that works. Yeah, really well. Imagine that. So let's get that link. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. It should be up for everyone in the group and this is going to be a uh, first time thing for us to get proficient with the comments uh, in terms of addressing things that people bring up on the fly and everything. So if you have something, just feel free to either blurt it out or put it in the comments and we will uh, get to it. It could be a thought about what we're talking about right now. You could put that in. Um, if you do leave some type of uh, reference so we know what you're you know, referring to. And if you didn't see the longer post and the outline, uh, I posted that in the group channel about some of my favorite quotes and uh, pieces in the book, uh, along with some questions to pose to the group that I think we're going to use to kind of get down to the bottom of things and figure out how to uh, not necessarily get more skin in the game ourselves, although that, you know, not a bad, not a bad goal, um, but how to figure out when we're looking at other people and other situations, really start to judge and see things from the a surround sound type view of how much skin in the game do other people have? Because I think one of the coolest things about this book is it brings up the scary truth that there are tons of people and institutions out there that are looking to exploit people. That's how they make money. It's how they stay in business. Uh, and they use pretty horrible tactics to do it. And they use what Taleb was talking about, which is basically transferring all the risk of their profession to others. So like in the banking industry, that's the infamous example that uh, Taleb has been called, you know, an a-hole and uh, other things for uh, and way worse for. 
um, because in the financial cr- crash, we had bankers um, taking all of the risk and putting it to the public. So the public ended up bailing uh, bailing out some of the largest financial institutions in America. And that's a great example of what Taleb is rallying against, which is large institutions transferring all the risk to people who are not even involved, involved to people that they're basically just trying to exploit or trying to sell to. Um, and that's uh, it's a cowardly profession. And we already see that it's on the way out. There aren't many people that are aspiring to, you know, come home at night and say, you know, hey, honey, like I made my money today by the taxpayers, by by, other, <laughs> by exploiting yeah. people, by uh, taking the most cowardly path I could find that also had the highest amount of social prestige. Like, I don't think that there's that many people that want to live life like that because eventually in our modern world, thanks to the internet, you're going to be found out. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's very clear now um, how corporations make their money. This is available to anyone now. So you can get online and see, okay, how much person or how much skin in the game does this uh, senator, does this um, CEO, does this executive have in the, in the game? Uh, and conversely, it's never been easier to Google someone's name online and see, okay, is like, what type of person uh, is this? Like, how much skin in the game do they have in their own pursuits? So- and just a quick sound check out there. I know people are having some uh, differing kind of sound quality issues. If uh, if you could just like type in the comments, like yes or no on sound quality, that would be great. And then we can know if you're hearing these pearls of wisdom. I don't know about that, but yeah, that's a, that's a good call. Getting the sound quality right yeah. first before you. Sorry, it makes sense. You know, we've had, had, had a few people mix, jumping around a little bit. Yeah, I think the cool thing, once we f- do figure it out, these uh, mics are going to be provide a really high level of sound quality. Dylan, where are you at? Sound quality. Cool. It's Yeah, it's perfect. Um, I'm Sweet. getting perfect from 60 to 70% of respondents. Ooh. That's a high confidence, high confidence level. So yeah, let's keep rolling with it. Um, everybody who's been in the comments so far, feel free to chime in and... There you go. So chime in on anything we're talking about. And I'm just going to roll through some of the entry points into making this applicable. And so you guys can start um, executing on it. And I selfishly, like, I want to hear everyone who tuned in. Like, I want to hear your ideas about how you're thinking differently about your own life, either after reading the book or after um, posing some of these questions to yourself as, or your friends maybe, uh, as thought experiments. So, so, so I, yeah, the, the more input, the better. Yeah. So I I wanted to to start off with how did you first find out about the book? Like when did kind of like what was your journey on, you know, obviously we wanted to share this with our audience, but like where did you kind of first step into it? So I first heard about Nassim uh, when he wrote a book called Fooled by Randomness, which was his, I think, second or third book. So his first book was a book for traders, which was like stochastic risk modeling or, or something like that. I'm not pronouncing it right. Any math majors out there, please correct me. But that book was uh, obviously like I, I didn't read it, but it was about financial trading and derivatives. Then his next book was about taking that knowledge and making it applicable for more people to take advantage of uh, the fact that most people don't understand randomness. Um, so it was just a book about like how to apply statistical thinking in your own life. It's also his website, right? Fooled by randomness. Fooled by randomness. Yeah. And um, that kind of pointed me in the direction of Anti-Fragile, which the majority of people here are probably going to be familiar with, his his most famous book, um, arguably Black Swan, things like that. Um, but Taleb's philosophy is so appealing because it's 
um, how to live in the real world. And the real world and the situations that we encounter, they're definitely not pleasant. But I think that there's just so much content out there that is about denying reality and about how, you know, how do you have the best time possible while ignoring as much of the facts and details and the horrible truths as possible, whereas uh, Taleb approaches that head on. And everything in the book is about how to not just endure the world and uh, adversity and trauma, but how to have the last laugh, how to have like the adventure not just mean something, but um, as a character in here would say, like Fat Tony, how do you not only have the last laugh, but also have laughs after your death type thing. So can we do like a quick recap of asymmetry and kind of, this is kind of a, I think it's just a it's kind of a tough topic to just kind of like wrap your brain around yeah. just before we before we kind of get into it yeah so when Taleb's talking about uh, symmetry and asymmetries and things like that uh, it's his attempt at analyzing where people are at in terms of how much skin in the game they they might have um, so if you're like analyzing something that's pretty symmetrical um, you would say that both sides are equal uh, or more equal and in Taleb's case, he would argue that the equality that he's really looking for and that he's optimizing for from a humanist standpoint is an equality of probability. So not outcome, which is nearly like impossible to engineer, but how do we get the principles right that might enable a more equal probabilistic landscape for everyone? So essentially, like, how do we get everyone playing by the same rules? So if things are more asymmetrical they are not aligned. So in the, in the case of like, you know, bankers versus the, uh, the customers who the bankers are advertising to, to open a CD or a more, you know, buy a mortgage through them or whatever, that would be a very asymmetrical situation. The bankers are playing by rules that are completely different from what the average citizen might be playing by. That's a larger example there. Um, but you know, you have an asymmetrical situation where you have like exploitation or it's not, not ideal, things like that. Um, whereas, you know, in cases of like entrepreneurship or when you're closer to the front lines of commerce, you might have a situation that is uh, very symmetrical, meaning that you have like information coming from the market and market participants at a really rapid pace. Another disclaimer that I wanted to do before we're like too far into this is this is not at <laughs> all yeah, meant to replace reading the book because everyone <laughs> uh, in the Mission Book Club obviously has volunteered to be here and, and learn and uh, grow together. But some of us, it's possible, might not have read the book yet. Uh, some of us are kind of getting, want to get maybe some cliff notes on this, but that's not as intended. Um, if you haven't after this, if this is kind of like piquing your interest and you want to be part of the dialogue and then come back and like post in the group after you've, you know, finished reading it or maybe you only got halfway through, what we're kind of doing here is by no means replacing the book. We couldn't even like scratch the surface on a lot of the things that he discusses in the book. And he has said this in multiple interviews. So definitely go read the book if you have not already. Um, and then kind of you can re-engage. We're going to keep this thread, obviously, the Mission Book Club open for as long, you know, years to come and continually kind of grow upon these principles and as we as we discuss other books. So, um just just reminder, if you haven't if you haven't read it yet, it's okay. And we're going to get crazy with it too. So the uh I know it's lame to have technical difficulties at your own live streaming, but it's worth it because the software we're learning how to use and optimize right now allows for really crazy things, which is when you do figure it out, which we're in the process of, you can have like 20 or 21 people call in in a live stream fashion. It works seamlessly. Uh, it's crazy. 
So that's the type of um, cool things that we're working on in the background because I want to go way beyond just like the nonfiction type, you know, business books into fiction, which uh, I just don't think that exists no, uh, I, right now. There's, it's really, really hard to find a good book club that spans everything that's out there instead of just getting siloed into one thing. Like I know that everybody that tuned in wants to read romance novels and wants us to do romance novels, but we're not just going to do romance novels. We are going to branch out into other topics. So, okay. So you want to start doing some quotes um, and then expand on those? Yeah. Let's expand on them and take them to the real world. So the the easiest one to, to start out with is that there have been a ton of different people that have said, uh, you know, genius isn't in short supply right now. And the only thing that is in short supply uh, or the shortest of supplies is courage. So Taleb says about courage that it's the only virtue you can't fake. And I love that. Like with social media, you can certainly take a swing at faking courage, but it's something that in the real world and in the absence of digital filters, it gets exposed so fast that it's not even funny. And so let's expand on that and figure out uh, how can we be more courageous in our own lives and you know what maybe in the past in situations where you have acted in a cowardly way, uh, what, why'd you do that? And I, you know, I'm thinking like personally there, but I would love to, yeah, throw that question out to everyone else, which is how do you act courageously or more courageously in your own life? And what's, what's kind of like been stopping you or limiting you, or maybe you're just like, yeah, you're on a tear. You're getting crazy out there. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, uh, Talib talks about this, about, you know, like the, the paradox, I forget who I'm going to butcher this, but the paradox of, uh, courage that like courage is the most important thing, but, um, uh, like safety is the most important thing. I forget who it was. Survival. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so survive, survive first and then you can start worrying about, yeah. Yeah. So morals, virtue, ethics. And so him and, uh, somebody else who, again, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were talking about how they dispelled this uh, or they solved this paradox. And the idea is that if you are, you can be courageous for the group, but worried about your own self-survival. And I think that for me personally, the idea of courage, which is really difficult is like, I personally at times can feel like courageous or going in, you know, having skin in the game and doing things but I feel kind of that fear for like my family or yeah. my friends or whoever it is around me where it's like, I don't want to take risks on their behalf. Like I don't want to risk my whole family's future on something that I personally want to do. And I think that that's a th something that I think a lot of people really struggle with is like, I want to take this risk, whether it's in business or otherwise, but I don't want my family to have to suffer for that or, and my family and friends or like even things that are even more like, Hey, I want to, know, ski down this double black diamond. It's like, yeah, I think it's fun for me. But if I hit a tree, you know, it's my family who pays for it. It's not me. So I think that that's personally what, like what I've seen as courage of like, I, I just don't want to inherit the risk for the people around me. So these are great points because this is the challenge that I think we're all faced with when we're making all of those micro decisions that encompass our day or our month or our quarter, you know, when we're looking back on it and what you just touched on when, you know, you're skiing and you have the opportunity to take the black diamond versus take like a, you know, more conservative choice it's a real choice where it's like those add up into something. And are you going to be too much of a risk taker or are you going to, you know, where's, where's the trade-off? And in every single situation, uh, there's a trade-off and it's something that it can get overwhelming thinking about it. 
and you can always paralyze yourself with indecision, but it's important to think about the trade-off because in the case of going down the black diamond, you're encountered with a situation that is going to, if you keep choosing that, not only are you going to become a better skier or snowboarder, you're going to get more courageous. You're, you're literally going to train yourself to be more at peace, more at calm in higher pressure situations. So I think that really analyzing situations and making sure you understand, is it fatal? What's the worst case from this? And then trying to grasp the probability of, you know, have, is there a 0.0001% chance of something bad happening today if I do this? And I know like, you know, personally, you know, we both left the military based on similar reasons, but when we were in, um, I'm, I'm sure that there were plenty of different opportunities that you had, just like I had to choose something that was like, riskier versus safer. And I made those, you know, tried to do that calculus again and again and again. And being an only child, it was obviously like not the, you know, maybe the best choice or the safest choice to join the military. Um, but there were ways that I could hedge against risks that I didn't want to take later on, where it's like you get offers to do um, more elite things or put yourself in more dangerous situations. And there were a couple of those where I was just like, okay, the risk to reward is not tapped out. And it's much more of a an ego thing. Like I'm trying to prove things to people I don't even really know versus, um, okay, I've, I've done the military, I've deployed. Now I can get back to being a little bit more safer in the, in the world. So that was a long, a no, long, a long mean, rant to kind of like play off of that idea. But each of us are running that calculus, like, like it or not, like every day. So. And Rebecca's running that calculus. Cause she Let's said that she feels a lot of parallels from running her own biz because it's terrifying. Um, but she could never go back in house because, she could never care as much about another company if it isn't my own. And like that's, and then, you know, she kind of goes on to say here that, um, that the fear of others being impacted, but the bigger issue of security slash safe bets are kind of not real in terms of job security. And that's, that's a great point because like what appears safe is not actually safe. Yeah. It's like you're relying on somebody else rather than, you know, the security of, of you doing it yourself, which you can at least control those, the outcomes a little bit. Yeah. Um, and Rebecca brings up a great point because like the environment where, you know, her choices now are like not risky at all. They're, they're excellent choices typically. And like that thought process of caring about the business versus maybe you care about your own business more, like that's, that's fantastic. And then for how many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, that's never been feasible before. It's always meant um, social ostracization, economic turmoil, or like complete failure. If you failed at that, where in the modern world, uh, that's, it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you might fail, but who cares? Like no big deal. You took the risk. Um, Rebecca, what kind of business do you run and uh, what do you do? Let us know. Um, cause we want to get not just tactical, but if we can do some direct help or chime in here, that would be really cool. Yeah. Should do in real time. Get a shout out in the mission. That's for sure. <laughs> Okay, next um, next quote, or do you have some? No, yeah, let's do, uh, as you tee up the next quote, um, let me just answer something that I'm sure is burning in everyone's brain right now, but they can't, they, <laughs> they don't want to ask it. Oh, she's a copywriter. Oh, awesome. Shout out in the DMs, sneak, sneak into the Mission HQ's DMs. Yeah, Rebecca, we'll talk to you in the DMs. Um, some help. Everyone's probably wondering what this beautiful uh, guy right here is, and that's Toasty. Toasty the dog is somewhere, actually, he's probably like... He's inside. He was 45 his, feet away right now, but... Yeah, his behavior was not not so great today. I'm just kidding. He's great. Okay, Jack. Jack said uh, that he found being courageous means fully taking the jump to make a decision after calculating risk-reward and understanding why you do or do not want to make the jump. 
Yeah, that thought process, people really don't uh, understand how valuable it is just to train yourself to always be in that mindset and to always be thinking and running those experiments in your head. Um, Because it's easy for us to think that other people think, and this isn't a really mean thing or anything like that, but it's my rant against relativism where not everything is the same and people are different. And if you really recognize individuality and the fact that people are going to be different, it means that not everyone is thinking as much as you. So you might spend a lot of your time thinking and agonizing about other other people. You might just be far more conscientious than the average person. But there are plenty of folks who don't spend any time thinking about the risk to reward or how dangerous things are. They just spend their life intuitively or in a a reactionary mode. Um, So I think that that's... uh, really cool. And so like, Jack, if you're just running these experiments in your head or calculating the risk to reward and at least being conscious of that, that is like putting you leaps and bounds ahead of most people who are just not thinking about anything. Uh, But over time, what's really cool is you train yourself to think and then you're just always thinking, which is pretty enjoyable. There's a great quote about that, Bill Watterson, who said that uh, when people were always asking him, like, what did he do to recharge the creator of Calvin and Hobbes for anybody that doesn't know. Um, But Bill Watterson would just remind people that your mind is like an engine or a car engine. It recharges by running. So the more you think, the more you practice creating or writing or drawing comics, um, the more you recharge. Kind of counterintuitive. So uh, let's switch gears to talk about another theme from the book that is really, I mean, central theme to the book is judge people's actions, not their words. Uh, So Nassim says, uh, those who talk should do, and only those who do should talk. Um, and this is something that I think, especially as we work in a media company, we, you know, obviously or we have a media company here at the mission. So we definitely do a lot of sharing people's words. And I think that something that people might not know is that like generally our philosophy is that we promote the work of doers, of people who are actually out there doing it. Um, but I think that the broader, I think, issue here that a lot of people face is, is really easy to kind of say like, oh, well, you know, just trust what people do. But we all fall victim to following what people say they are going to do rather than the track record of what they're doing. Completely. And like social media, digital filters, all these tools are predicated on curating and editing your appearances of what you believe and what you think and everything. And but beliefs are not defensible. There's always what somebody says and what they say they believe and then their actions. And most people's actions are obscured from view. You don't get to see them almost ever. Sometimes you might see a testimonial or something like that, but we all know how accurate like testimonials are on LinkedIn and places like that. Like the 50 people who have endorsed me for entrepreneurship haven't necessarily, you know, come and looked at our PL statements. Let's just, you know, let's just say that. Um, but that that's the same for basically everything. There aren't reviews and ratings for people and it gets into to really problematic territory from a privacy standpoint. Um, but that's a lot of companies are pushing hard to develop those ratings. We already have early attempts that a lot of companies are making to rate and review people like credit scores. So credit scores are a great example of um, not the most fun example, but it's a great example of judging not what somebody says they're going to do or not you know, the fact that they want to like abolish the Fed or something like that doesn't matter as much as your credit score. So you can access way more opportunity if you have a better credit score. Um, but it's one measurement attempt by a larger company. And there's a quick uh, rant too on Taleb. So what's so cool about him is that he's a uh, trader in the real world. So 
lots of times when we think about like financial traders, we don't think about people who create as much value as people who uh, take value or slice the pie or things like that. But what's interesting on how Taleb made most of his money was he, does anybody know how he made most of his money? So I'm curious uh, in the comments right now, just give me a shout out if you, uh, if you do know the backstory. But he essentially, spoiler alert, it's it's coming uh, regardless. But So he made what's called a negative carry trade back in before the financial crisis where he basically paid money each month to bet against a lot of the subprime mortgage swaps and things like that. So he essentially paid money to have everyone else around him and his neighbors and his friends and his work circle think he was an idiot and think that he was losing money for basically five years. Uh, and then his fund returned a billion dollars after the financial crisis. So he was essentially making money by keeping the fraudsters and a lot of the people who would you know, go through that revolving door in between finance and politics. He was keeping them honest because he took their money because he knew that they weren't being um, as honest as they could be about the value of some of these like subprime securities and things like that. Um, I think that's a really cool example because our modern economy is so complicated that it's very tempting to think if we're not on the front lines of capitalism every single day asking people, will you pay me money for this service, that we're somehow not important or not uh, a vital part of the the machine, the machine of cooperation that helps us um, you know, live, get new opportunities, creates new things. Um, but in reality, things like keeping people honest um, writing, copywriting, like all of these things are really important. And so skin, you know, having more skin in the game, it's not this like call to entrepreneurship or like blind yeah, call or anything. That's like a good that. point. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, uh, and I'll say that, you know, Chad and I have skin in the game here when we're banging <laughs> on the table so hard that Max, the producer has sent us a DM saying you're banging the table too hard. So, okay. Don't, don't bang the, t- bang the table. Don't take it. Not, not literally, at least. When we get the mic arms installed, I'm telling That's you true. that is the problem because you will not be able to hear. That's a great that, point. But. but no, I think you're exactly right. And I think that that's part of the problem uh, specifically with like the, uh, I guess, like romanticism of entrepreneurship sure. right now. We're making it, money in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and again, like that's fine. Like I, I actually, I think the whole entrepreneur culture is actually cool. I think people like just want to S on it all day. This is a family friendly uh, live stream. So we're not, there might be kids in there. <laughs> but people want to just like absolutely slam on the like, oh, they're a wantrepreneur and all they do is like posts like selfies. And they're, but they're looking into it. And we, I mean, we've talked about this. So we work yeah. with like so many of the lots of very fortunate now to work with a lot of executives at large tech companies who like sponsor our branded content and stuff, stuff like that. We create, won't bore you with it. But the lesson I've drawn from it is that many of those executives who have spent their life inside a corporation and a big job are far, far more proficient at creating value and executing on things. And from a real definition standpoint of entrepreneurship, of shifting resources from areas of low yield to high yield, they're masters at it. And honestly, like there's so many entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs and um, even accomplished CEOs, maybe they've sold a small company or something like that, who the executives that we meet, not only do they have skin in the game, but they work like 12 hours a day and they're completely fine with, you know, working, taking some time off, but then coming back and banging out like 13 hour days. And these, these people are like literally incredible. And their level of like um, skin in the game might be questioned by some people, but it's like, they're masters at creating more with a small amount of resources and teams. So that's my, my pro business, pro corporate rant that, um, cause it's easy to trash corporations. It's, but, it's way harder to like 
steel man the situation where you're um you know instead of straw manning steel manning is the just like improving their case but it's a cool cool like concept it. to explore um so and i wanted to segue from that into the kind of entrepreneurship stuff into some of the like class um like stoics and classic classical value type stuff because he talks about this a lot and um you know, he's noted as saying, I don't know if it, I don't think it was in this, but that if a book has been around for X amount of years, the then, Lindy effect. Yeah. The yeah. Lindy effect. Thank you. Um, that it's, it's, it's really hot in here. Sorry. Yeah. It's ridiculously hot. It's all right. Um, <laughs> my, my, uh, I'm going to hold strong with the mission hoodie. You're getting the authentic brand, uh, California experience. Here. Brand placement. Um, Solid. but so, so if a book has been around for people who don't know the Lindy effect, if a book has been around a hundred years, then, um, Basically, chances are it's going to be around another 100 years. And so, therefore, it's very valuable to look back at Seneca and Caesar and Marcus Aurelius and all these people. But what is so interesting about them specifically and the reason why it's so important to look back, other than the fact that their tech, these texts have been around for so long, so presumably some good stuff in there to be re reductive. But another reason why it's so interesting is because they, at some point, from what he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that these people at some point had skin in the game and then they retired to write the books, which is, I think, yeah. something that people don't really get with kind of the whole skin in the game mentality is that yeah. if you once you do the work and then you write about all of it being done, it's not the reverse of that, which is like just sitting there writing and then, you know, pontificating about doing the work, but never uh, yeah. ever having done it. And I think beware people who write books for a living. And that's what is... It, coming from a writer. Yeah. I, no, coming from a well, writer. And one of, the, one of the reasons that we're here and that we're doing the mission in the first place is I analyzed that the lives. So not what great writers said they believed, but what happened to them and what, how did they end up? And the situation is like, that's the biggest taboo in the world to bring up in writing circles and stuff like that. These people have like the quote unquote heroes that they say, once again, their beliefs that this person is like great. They, uh, they follow all their tips and all their, you know, their advice and stuff like that. It's like, okay, that person ended their lives by uh, killing themselves when they were like in their fifties. Yep. That person was a raging alcoholic. Like you're really going to take all of your advice from Alan Watts. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to bash on Alan Watts. That's just one example, but there's so many people like that where it's like, okay, the result of everything that he publicly espoused led him to become a raging alcoholic. And that was about it. There's tons of writers like that. But, and but so why, yeah. yeah, but why, why is he so adamant that you can't just be the person who, who is out there writing about these things? I think just because you're levels removed from the actual, you know, boots on ground scenario, what's actually going on on the ground. Um, it's already hard enough. We see this through like eyewitness testimony and things like that to recall a situation accurately. But if you get in a situation where you're teaching or something like that for years on end, I mean, that's why they professors originally used to have sabbaticals and things like that was to go back out into the real world and get new experiences and then bring those forward into teaching again. But it's really hard to recall how things actually happened. And if you are closer to the action every single day, you have a much, much better view than the person that, who's a professional commentator or writer or something like that their incentives once you're a professional like writer and that's all you do uh i think you can fall into a trap a lot of times of writing for the masses instead of writing to solve specific challenges and the not masses not being like a detrimental word but so, but so just a larger audience um and this is again this is using kind of his words and warping them a little bit but it's it would like 
it would be like taking advice from a bear fighter has no scars, right? Yeah. And, and no, so, and crazy. he talks about, he talks about scars all the time and how over the course of history, it's like you had to take risks and then the scars kind of tell the story. But I think in modern day culture, there's definitely not a lot of physical scars. Like none of yeah. us do any work anymore uh, that we could get anything like that. So you have to be able to have those experiences to be able to show that you've done things that matter. And like writing the book about who's the guy, there's somebody um, that published with us pretty recently that had some brutal stories. Gosh, was, sorry, I forget was your name. Was it the- uh, The guy who lost $700 million. So uh, it wasn't the co-founder of Activision and it wasn't Tim Ferriss. It was uh, one of the other people that was writing for Yeah, us. who? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, there's like lame, humble brags. It was uh, Cliff Lerner, Cliff. the founder of- uh, Oh, bam. Yeah, Explosive. Sorry, Brain. Cliff, yeah. I forgot your name. And so this Taleb cites, one of his favorite books is What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. But those stories are not really like the press and the people who Cliff was reaching out to to get coverage for his book. They weren't really like all about it because a lot of his story and a lot of the book is about what he learned struggling. And that's those are where the really valuable lessons are. So whether it's what you learned losing a million dollars or what you learned losing tens of thousands of dollars on your own, it's that's that might be where the real insights are. Yeah, and that's seventy-eight million dollars. So, um, not seven hundred million. But yeah, but same same idea. I said, hey, if I there's people I lost out there. Either, yeah, there's people out there losing. If I lost seventy-eight dollars. Um, okay, so Jack said one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was the idea that more often than not, minorities control decisions for the majority. For example, the tyrannical majority. Yeah, yeah. Minority. I love that part. Yeah. Talib mentioned something like seventy percent of the UK's imported lamb is halal, even though four percent of the UK's population is Muslim. And this is something that's really interesting. Where everybody, I, I think he said this as well, is that everybody drinks uh, kosher soda because <laughs> uh, because basically, if you eat kosher food, then yep. uh, then you need it to be kosher. But if you don't, you don't really care. Um, but he, he made the same point about, um, about kind of like the reverse of that. And that's an asymmetry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the reverse of that is also true. Whereas like, if you have 10 good people and you have one bad actor, that is the same, it can have the same sort of effect, which can be a powerful thing in society. Yeah. And this, this is what's exciting though, about getting this type of information out here. So when Jack is like reminding us of the example, that's so cool because just imagine now this example actually having the potential and imagine this information getting to that minority, that quote unquote intolerant minority as Taleb describes them. Because for the first time in history, we're able to use math and statistics and uh, facts and objective truth and bring that to the people who are actually controlling a lot of the things. And it's on each of us in whatever way, you know, you might be the intolerant minority when it comes to movie decisions in your family. Um, this is what Taleb calls like, uh, yeah, I'm going to butcher this, but basically this idea is so cool because it applies at a local level and also a much larger macro level. And these are ideas that are more, he Taleb would say this is more fractal in nature. So parts of the smaller philosophy actually map perfectly to the larger philosophy. So the challenge for each of us then is to apply and create philosophies and ideas and get information that exposes us when we are that intolerant minority. So basically recognizing how much power we have over the control or the choices of others, that's going to be something that helps us make better decisions. So the uh, people who are you know, controlling and dictating a lot of the halal food and stuff like that, um, now this information is free to get out and find them 
and they can adjust their choices accordingly. And this is like a low stakes type situation. But when it comes to situations like should a country go to war or something like that, the same type of philosophical thinking and framework is invaluable because you get, you know, simple situations where it's like, well, if you're calling for war, if you're voting for war, is any of your family exposed to the conflict or, you know, are your sons and daughters exposed? Uh, and I think it just brings up really interesting ethical points that people are ready to discuss. By the way, Brittany said, great point, Chad. Brittany, thanks, thank, Brittany. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I appreciate that. You don't have to tune in for the whole thing, but I appreciate the support. This is one, this is one of the things that um, I thought was super fascinating um, that he's talked about is the idea that back in the day, if you were to make a house for somebody, if the house fell down and it Hem- killed some... Hammurabi's? Or Harami. Hammurabi. Hammurabi's Hemurabi. code. Hammurabi, there we go. Yeah, at Hammurabi's code, which is a you know framework that was around for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, that, you this know, is how we get around regulation, though. If you don't want 60, a 60,000-page 60, IRS code, you can apply and live off of these ideals at the local level. And then people who do the macro BSing, i.e. regulators and bureaucrats, don't have to create ridiculous laws. Yeah, but so, and the the idea being that if uh, you know back in the day, if you built somebody a house and you did, did a bad job and it fell over and it uh, you know like injured their firstborn son, that your you know firstborn son would then have to be injured or whatever. Now again, like that in and of itself is obviously really tough to think about. Like that's a pretty hard kind of thing to think about. But to your point, it's like in culture now or just all time in culture, there has to be something that keeps the, uh, those folks from being able to essentially like assert control. Do do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And that's where, you know, we need situations that aren't stale and stagnant. Like change has to be a constant. And that's one of the things like, uh, evolutionary biologists, one of the most interesting things that they discovered is that changes occur at, um, complex systems, basically, once complex systems get to what's called the edge of chaos, that's the only place where epigenetic changes and um, that's where evolution takes hold and new things happen. But it's only at the edge of chaos where this happens. And the edge of chaos is not always enjoyable. <laughs> it's it's everything that Taleb writes about, which is it oscillates between periods of euphoria and then terror and periods of you know getting a uh, a six-figure tax bill that turns out to be not uh, you know entirely <laughs> accurate and then you can just like relax when you're like okay it's all good it's not it's not a real thing but that moment of terror is what made the figuring it out so worthwhile and that's what's fun about the edge of chaos let's talk a little bit about and by the way we were at like almost 45 minutes here so oh d- um, damn I know. So fast. Well, we got started late, so yeah. that's kind of why. But uh, we'll probably still keep going for another fifteen minutes for everybody, um, and then uh, and then we'll give <laughs> everybody a time to eat, to eat dinner. Or if you're already done with dinner because you're on the East Coast or somewhere else in the world, shout out to everybody. I want to talk a little bit about survival um, and uh, this quote: "The only definition of rationality that I've found is practically, empirically, and mathematically rigorous." Is the following: What is rational is that which allows us for survival. Unlike modern theories, blah 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 blah. The idea that um, anything that hinders one's survival at an individual, collective, tribal, or general level is to me irrational. So. Could you talk a little bit about like how he views survival and what is rational? Yeah, I think that 
focusing on survival and is the first step towards honoring and worshiping all of the risk takers that came before. So in our own family lineage and in the larger human lineage, uh, in the last 50,000 years, there have been, or it's like, no, last, I think 5 million years, there have been something like nine different ice ages where humans have been around. So arguably we've had our ancestors who have done and gone through horrible, horrible things. And it's only through recognizing their sacrifices or doing the best we can at it that we don't let them be in vain, that we don't you know, stay mired in the present where we think that sacrifice is only something that relates to us. It's like, no, we are, you are the result of potentially millions, tens of millions of uh, human-related decisions that didn't work out so well. And some worked out well, and you're you know, a result of the ones that, um, that did work out. And that is survival. That's survival from a, a longer historical perspective. And that is the first step, I think, towards um, mastering survival in the present is realizing what's at stake and just how many people came before. All right, let's do some quick hits. Um, and by the way, fire any more questions. Brittany, you're great. 45 minutes of awesome. <laughs> um, Love it. Uh, let's do some quick hits on... Oh, and I got one crazy question too. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, I want to pose this question while there's still uh, still some people tuned in. Um, so this f- chapter four got me thinking of, it's basically about like how to be a whistleblower. So at what point would you be a whistleblower? That's just a question That's for everybody. A question. You don't have to, you don't have to answer it, but at what point and at what degree would you be a whistleblower? What if it meant like fear of jail? What if it meant just play out the thought experiment and uh, let me know because I want to expand on this and I want to start yeah, thinking about That's this way a, more. Dude, we should do that in the Mission Daily podcast. We should yeah. do an episode on whistleblowers. Which, if anybody didn't know, the Mission Daily podcast and the Story podcast are, yeah, our taking two, off. Our two podcasts from the mission. So check them out. Yeah, but, you should check them out, themission.co. Subscribe if you haven't. Um, dude, but we should totally do a, uh, whistleblowers. That's a great idea. Yeah. Maximus, could you take that down? Note whistleblowers for a future episode of the Mission Daily. So let me, yeah, check the comments, but... Um, or if you have a story about a situation where you did whistleblow, or it could it could be a small scale. Like I don't care if it's like a summer job or something like that. Uh, so I have a really good. This is a short one. So back in the army, there was a very inefficient process of how basically soldier records were uploaded, and um, it was super screwed up. And so I I knew that it was super screwed up, and I basically asked like everyone on my team to like tell me how many hours it would take to like fully update one soldier's records, and it was like an hour and 25 minutes or something like that. And I was like, times 300 times, you know, for our battalion times, you know, eight for the eight other battalions, uh, times whatever. And I was like, so you're doing I, HR ops for like 20,000 soldiers, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. it was a lot, it was a lot of soldiers. And so, so I emailed our brigade commander, which is essentially the equivalent of like a fortune 500 CEO with like 5,000 employees essentially. And I just emailed him like directly from me. Uh, and I was just like, Hey, sir, just want you to, want to let you know that the operation that we were just given is to do this. And that would take like approximately like, uh, 790 days to complete, uh, (laughs) in the next like three weeks, um, like completely undermanned, like doesn't even begin to describe this. Like, this is not something that is even feasible at this time. Uh, there needs to be like a correction from higher. So I emailed him and I CC'd the head of us army, uh, basically the guy who wrote the policy <laughs> and uh immediate response back and immediately they changed it 
because it was like nobody from the levels. And I got absolutely the worst looks, like dirty looks, got a lot of emails come in, like, how did you do that and all that stuff. But and that was the small price to pay to make the overarching system better. And now 20,000 people are going to have a standard that's going to like contribute in a small way to their standard of living increase, like all kinds of small ripple effects echo from stuff like that. But you know what? The the reason why I did it though, was because I had already submitted my paperwork to get out at that point. So I was like, they can't, they can't demote me. They can't, or they can't, I can't not get promoted. And and that's the thing. But like, especially if you're in a career where you're like, I'm going to, I need to stay on this career trajectory or this, that, or the other, like people won't, fire the flare directly into the and like honestly yeah. I, I would have done it anyways but that's just kind of me but but is the idea that like and a lot of people are like i can't believe you did that and it's like i'm sitting there eating sushi and i get a call from the brigade commander and he just like he's like give me everything on the situation immediately really really cool and i think what's like fun about that is you can be exiting a situation where you know you're taking uh like a little bit of proverbial like money off the table. Like you're, you have a, you've bought yourself a little bit of safety and now you can do something that's a little bit risky on your way out. You can kind of like fix things that you couldn't have fixed before when you were like too entrenched in the system or deployed or something like that, where the stakes are a little bit higher. And that's really interesting because each of us can run the calculus in those local situations and figure out like, okay, I can, I can handle getting yelled at. I can handle getting like chewed out. It's not going to be a big deal. And uh, yeah, I think that's really cool. Well, and it actually too, now that thinking about it, it's like, it was like, you know, it was, it was the personal courage on my part because it was like, well, I could get in trouble for it, but it was like for the collective yeah. or like it, like, and it wouldn't have been catastrophic for me at all. Yeah. But it's like, it could have been decently bad, but for the collective, it's like, it was a big win for all the people that, yeah. that needed that stuff done. Really, really cool. So at this point we are going to be wrapping it up. Uh, should we close on the long maxim at the, from the end of the book? Uh, do you want to do, yeah, I mean, we could do, I, I want to just do like a few more like super quick hits let's do and, it. Then, and then we'll let's close All right, it more quick hits and then a final, um, final reading. Uh, I wanted to know, um, from you just like, what do you, what do you think in terms of like applying this book in people's lives? Um, what are just some like quick hits that, that people can do to, to try to apply some of the principles? I think that, uh, being riskier in just about every single situation, uh, I think that we always take for granted how much more risk we can take, how much, uh, we can do things that feel callous or insensitive Often those are just like specters of our imagination. We've perfected politeness now in our society, in our modern world. You've been trained for 12, 20, 30 years, who knows how long to have these imaginary ideas in your head about you need to be careful that you don't offend uh, these 10 people who are around you that you spend the most time with. Well, as you get older, that amount of people that you're not supposed to offend gets larger and larger and larger until it expands to all of your family, your extended family and your friends and their friends. And then you get on social media and then all of a sudden you're in a panopticon where you're almost a prisoner who is subjecting every new thought and new idea to the approval of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people on social media. And that is really limiting. And so often we think that all of these people are analyzing what we're doing or watching us. And it feels like that panopticon or type of prison when in reality, nobody cares. And you can get so much uh, wilder and do so much more crazy things than you think that you can. 
So just test that in whatever way you can uh, today. So don't wait, text somebody, text somebody like something crazy right now. That's either, you know, you've been wanting to say, or you think that you should say, um, yeah, don't care what it is. Um, next person you see, say something that's a little bit crazier than what you might normally do. Have a direct experience. Get that direct experience. Dude, yeah. my mom said to me this weekend, she went, uh, shout out to the moms. Yeah. Who, shout out. Moms are, love the mission. Who are following, moms following the mission. Love the mission. And, gram, and grandmothers who are creating be- and, yeah, beautiful wall art. Creating art. Shout out to Dylan's grandma. Um, my mom said to me this weekend, she was like, we're at the, at this place, at this park. And she was like, I'm trying to have a direct experience. And I was like, <laughs> damn, you're, you're so great. That was episode, uh, episode one of the Mission Daily Podcast. Um, okay. Long Maxim, go for it. Rebecca Panopticon, word of the day. I know that's a 72 pointer in Scrabble. Yeah, it's a scary thing. We'll do a longer post. And in terms of next book, we'll be announcing that soon. Uh, but I'd love to hear, We I, so I can pick the book and I could pick some a book that is that nobody's heard of, but I think that everybody who's tuned in now will love. We could just throw that out there. Uh, if that's interesting, just let me know and I'll pick the book. But if you guys have suggestions or if there's a book you want to read, we can uh, we can do that one. Just let us know. Yeah, just just fire in a bunch of ideas onto the onto the page, and then we can go from there. Okay. So the last uh, book club I was at, the host read. Wait, a sec- hold on. You're cheating book clubs with us. <laughs> What's going on? So yeah, the last book club I was at, the host kind of like surprised everybody because he he pulled out like a book and just read us like almost a whole chapter from it. And it was kind of like. It was out of character. I was not expecting it. And it was a really cool experience. So I'm going to try to attempt to rep- replicate that here. So this is the final maxim that Nassim Taleb uh, leaves us with. So it's not as much a poem as it is designed to be something that you can easily remember. Uh, a lot like a rap song, except you're not going to want to move weight afterwards. You're just going to want to move like the, the weight that builds your muscles. So no muscles without strength. Friendship without trust, opinion without consequence, change without aesthetics. So this is via negative. He's saying like no muscles without, no friendship without trust, no opinion without consequence, no change without aesthetics. You get the idea. No age without values, life without effort, water without thirst, food without nourishment, love without sacrifice, power without fairness, facts without rigor, statistics without logic, mathematics without proof, teaching without experience, politeness without warmth, values without embodiment, degrees without erudition. So that means degrees versus learning on your own, militarism without fortitude, progress without civilization, friendship without investment, virtue without risk, probability without ergodicity. I have no idea what that means. Wealth without exposure, complication without depth, fluency without content, decision without asymmetry, science without skepticism, or religion without tolerance. And most of all, nothing without skin in the game. So that's a whole long uh, maxim there that is kind of celebrating the values and virtues of trade-offs. So there's nothing for free in our world, um, but the, do, the thing that we do get is arguably free will to decide and try to make the best choices we can. That was killer. Awesome. So with that, if you have anything, let us know. And stay tuned. We'll let you know the next book. And thanks so much for tuning in. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, See everyone. Guys.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.